This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we are here again with you today on this lovely day to talk movies. What's up? Oh, not much. Kind of a a low week Mm -hmm. energy-wise. I've just been really tired this week, but I've also been watching a lot of TV. Yeah, so I uh, I have too. I I actually just had a birthday. I have to throw that out there. You sure did. Yeah, so this week was, I actually went out of town. I, d- I finally did something for my birthday. Because remember, like, the past <laughs> couple of years have been COVID, and I You've haven't done, done something- shit. For your birthday, on your birthday, not like a month later or three months later. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it was so funny. I was like talking to my mom and dad the other night. And so my birthday is in March, obviously. And I remember my birthday came like two weeks after literally everybody went into quarantine. Because I feel like everybody went into quarantine that like first or second week in March. So for my birthday, they weren't even like delivering food. Like nobody (laughs) knew what was going on. (laughs) The first year. I couldn't even get like a, a cheeseburger delivered to my house at this point. <laughs> Nobody could send you presents. <laughs> yeah, no one. I think actually you came over. Yeah. We were like two people in, you know, hazmat suits, like not getting within <laughs> six feet of each other. And I remember you like, I think you like dropped a bag off. Like at I just uh, in threw the it at your lot. front door. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. It was like yeah, something. Just threw it at the door and called yeah. you. And I was like, um, your bag's in the parking lot. If you don't want anybody else to get it, come down in three seconds. <laughs> I know. It was like so sad. But so anyway, I, I went up to the mountains of North Georgia and nice. uh, went hiking and stayed in a cabin. It was really nice. But also, I have been watching a lot of TV, too. And I'm curious as to what you've been watching lately. Because I know that a lot of people were recommending TV shows for you. Did you take anybody yes. up on their suggestions or you went um, on a different path? I went on a different path. A couple, a lot of people suggested things that I had already watched or were, was already aware of. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of went on a different path. But um, And also, I'm, just, I'm never going to watch Ted Lasso. We got so many recommendations for Ted Lasso. I cannot explain why, and we do not have to interrogate it further. I'm just never going to watch it. <laughs> let's just leave it at, le- at that. I won't yeah. be either. Yeah, uh, and let's just it. leave it there. Yep. And I'm sure it could be the greatest things in sliced bread. I'm missing out, and I'm fine with it. There are Three shows that I've been watching, one of which I desperately want to talk to you about because I know you've been watching it too. Mm. Um, I watched first um, a show that I've been really loving on HBO called Welcome to Utmark. And it's this like Norwegian show. I can't even explain it. It's the weirdest, coolest, wildest show I've seen in a long time uh, with a very good narrative thread throughout. Very cool characters. It's just so great. And so I think it's still on... I watched it on HBO. I think it's still on there. 
welcome to Utmark. Um, okay. It's kind of all I want to talk about. So <laughs> I hope that you watch it so we can talk about it. The other thing I finally caught up on was Dope Sick on Hulu uh, with Michael Keaton. And like it has this incredible cast. And my God, the Sackler family, just what they've done with opioids and like just seeing it laid out in the way that it was laid out was jarring mm. and horrifying. But it didn't make me sad. It made me like, actively angry like i wanted to do yeah. something about it so it wasn't like my six feet under rewatch where i was like oh god nothing matters i was like no fuck yeah. this and fuck these people so i really liked that it's a great show i think they did a really good job with it but the one that i want to talk to you about <laughs> is a perennial favorite um and i can't believe we haven't talked about it already but the second season of the righteous gemstones <laughs> You are correct. I have watched it. I'm all caught up, even at the end. Oh, I still have one episode to go. <laughs> yes, you have one episode to go. And for anyone who, who who hasn't watched The Righteous Gemstones and wants to watch it one day, just fast forward like, you know, five minutes because we're going to talk about it in a little bit and try not to give spoilers. But there's no guarantees because I just love this show. <laughs> I, I'm going to th- I'm going to tell you something right now. I pretty much figured out that. I will literally watch anything Danny McBride does. Yes. Insofar as the characters of that show talk like depraved Southern middle schoolers. <laughs> like, that's it. That's really all it is for me. Is that I'm like, it could be like any character. Like, you can be a baseball player, you can be a vice principal, you can be, uh, you know, the the head of a, a mega church, as long as you talk like a middle schooler, like a shitty Southern middle schooler, I'm in. I'll watch. I'll go anywhere with you. Danny I am McBride. there with, I will go the distance with Danny McBride. I think he, again, as of this recording, cool guy, <laughs> like hasn't said or done anything as wild. Of this recording. At the time of this recording, he's been cool. <laughs> and I love his commitment to keeping it real in all of his characters and the righteous gemstones because I I'm like you like I loved Eastbound and Down I loved Vice Principals, Walton Goggins yeah. is his soulmate oh. and I don't care what anyone has to say including his wife Walton Goggins is Danny McBride's soulmate. Yes, they're like John Waters and Divine. Uh, they're like total total kismet. Absolutely, right? and I think that the righteous gemstones feels to me like a wonderful culmination of all of those types of characters because it's these this mega church family these three kids and their partners and the kids are adults but they are all so they still talk to each other like depraved middle schoolers like they are all so shitty and how they interact with each other and watching them devolve Further and further with their insults is the highlight of my week every episode. It is so funny. Judy yes. is the greatest character that has been created in recent years. Yeah. And every time somebody says Uncle Baby Billy, I just want to piss myself laughing. Listen, Georgia stands a legend, <laughs> Walton Goggins, from Lithia Springs, baby. Like, we stand him forever. <laughs> He probably hasn't lived in Georgia in like 30 years, but I'm just like, he is, he is a part of us. Like we claim him. As you should. And I think Danny McBride actually lived in Georgia at one point too. I feel like he lived in Statesboro or something. But anyway, Walton Goggins as Uncle Baby Billy 
with that, like, he perfects that old Southern guy whistle voice yes. where he talks with that little whistle. Yeah. I'm like, God, what a fucking genius. And also throwing tantrums. Like, he throws the best tantrums on screen (laughs) he's an adult man playing an older adult man and just perfects that kind of old man tantrum god i i cannot say enough good things about walton goggins you're so right that they they were meant to be together total soulmates edie patterson though Uh, i gotta tell you the one thing about vice principals that now having watched the righteous gemstones i'm like Oh my God, I wish she was in Vice Principals more. I know. Because she is fucking incredible. And she writes oh on my the God. show too. And she's just so good. She's so good. When she signs her phone, <laughs> she was autographing her photos at the church. And she, <laughs> I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but like her autograph on those photos sent me over the edge for like a week straight. Every time I thought of it, I burst out laughing. Yeah. And she also had, I don't know if you've if you've read last month she or maybe a few weeks ago, she came out with a, a Grub Street diet where she was filming something and she was talking about the Grub Street the Grub Street diet is basically like, hey, what are you eating every day this week? And she was filming in Canada and she's like, It's freezing and I'm eating a lot of hotel food. But she went to this one store and found like pistachios and she's like, I will put hot mustard on anything. Like she just puts mustard on everything. Like I just love her. Love it. And I love this character. Yes. Like, I love her two bits, and I love this character so much. Well, and so much of, like, why I love this, like, universe that they've created throughout these all these shows is because, you know, I obviously am from South Carolina and Georgia. I grew up in the South, lived there pretty much my entire life, except for when I lived in L.A. And they get the nuance of Southern shit so perfect. And I swear to God, like, every time Judy Gemstone comes on screen— I'm sent back to when I was actually in seventh grade and there was this girl in my middle school named Crystal who had the nastiest mouth like and would just say the nastiest shit like like she was the first one that I knew that was just saying boner the word boner like all the time. Like I was like I've never I don't think I've ever said boner like I've never uttered the words but she's like y'all need to go around there and check his boner. And I'm like, what? Like, we're saying this now? And it just, like, rolled off her tongue. Chris, I was like, Crystal wow. leveled everybody up just by existing. And that is Judy <laughs> Gemstone to a T. Yes, exactly. And that's every time I think I I think of this girl, Crystal, I think that is Judy Gemstone in adult form. Like, she's basically yes. that, that girl that I went to middle school with as an adult. I remember when we after we watched the first season, you were we were talking about how... The de- speaking of the the nuance and the details and the southernness that he just gets so spot on every time, it made me laugh so hard when you're like that those bathrooms because they live in these like mega mansion yes. houses, these new build houses, and like they have the kind of bathrooms where their tubs have curtains. Yes, like not just like a shower curtain, but like window curtains on the tub, and you're like those details are intensely Southern. (laughs) Yeah, Southern people are all about putting, like, drapery in every nook and cranny of a house. It's like a fucking 
like there's drapery and and valances and fucking um, <laughs> curtain holder things everywhere in these tiny spaces. Like in these like the window, like a tiny little like window in a bathroom or like in a basement, and there's just like fucking floral swag bullshit everywhere. <laughs> I swear a to God. A full balance on an eight-inch window. Totally. Like, somebody is, like, <laughs> going down to Hobby Lobby and fucking buying, like, fabric to make their own, like, sunflower balloon balance for this, like, 15-inch window or whatever. It's, like, so outrageous. And everything matches. They've got they've got the Barbie um, toilet roll holder yes. on the back of every, <laughs> every toilet where, like, her legs go in the hole. And then she has, like, a crochet dress that covers the toilet paper. My fucking mom had that when we were growing up. <laughs> My grandma had one of those. And every time I took a shit, I was like, the fuck is this bitch doing here? <laughs> Listen, I- I'll tell you right now. So both my parents are immigrants, right? They're from other countries. They moved to America at some point. Like my dad moved in. I don't even remember. He was like a teenager. My mom came over when she married my dad. Okay. And, and for the most part, we were raised in the South. So I had this like weird disconnect between like my parents not being Southern, but then they also kind of got into Southern shit. Like they were really obsessed with the Civil War. I think I talked about this yes. on a bonus episode. That's how they assimilated. They assimilated yes. to Southernness, not just America. Right. Because <laughs> I, I kept wondering why they wanted to go to all these like Civil War things. I'm like, you have no skin in this game. You were not in this country. Like who gives a fuck? But they loved it. And in the bathroom, I swear to God, I remember that Barbie toilet roll thing next to this tiny basket of soaps from Dollywood. You know, Dollywood, the uh, Dolly Parton's theme park, still in plastic. So it's still shrink wrapped because nobody's allowed to use those fancy soaps. (laughs) And those two used to sit next to each other in my mom's bathroom when we were living in Goose Creek, South Carolina. Like those two things. You've got Danny McBride and Walton Goggins are soulmates. The Barbie toilet roll and the unwrapped soaps from like Dollywood, or in my house it was from Atlantic City. The, un- yes. the unwrapped soaps from Atlantic City <laughs> in that little basket—they are also a, a, pereni- a, a quintessential pairing. Yes, and and I and I want to believe that this was also just sort of like '80s style, like '80s like bathroom yes. style was like this, but also it was there's a folksiness there, like totally that a lot of moms and grandmas had, you know? Well, because a lot of that, and I think we talked about this before too, maybe in the same episode where you mentioned the, <laughs> the Dollywood soaps, but we've talked about the fact that like back then a lot of stuff was just handmade and you did what you could with what you had. Yeah. And it was kind of like a mark of pride in your home that you made something for it. So like if you had a crochet Barbie doll toilet roll holder, you're definitely going to match it with the crochet doorknob hole, like or whatever the thing that hung on the doorknob. Yes. That, like, <laughs> I don't know what that thing was, like to keep the drafts out or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> like doorknob warmer. Just... I don't know. <laughs> Those things were just like in every house because of the time. But yeah. like you said, there's a folksiness to it. I think folksiness was more appreciated in the 80s than it is now for sure. Yeah, no kidding. Nobody was trying to like style out their houses like their grandmothers the way we are. Like everyone right now is like, I love mid-century modern. I'm like, no, you don't. You just miss your grandma's house. Yeah, no, everybody's house now has like desert vibes. It's like everything is white and then there's like one you know, fucking postcard, a black, white postcard that's like tacked to the wall. And then there's like a snake plant 
And that's it. That's an entire fucking house. And you, you got to have a bare light bulb in there somehow. Yes. <laughs> I know we've talked about this because it is my constant pet peeve. When I see bare light bulbs on like apartment therapy or like any of the house <laughs> things I follow, I want to throw my computer out of the window. Oh my God. Bare light, bare light bulbs to me, when I was growing up, that was like the, the ultimate symbol of how poor yeah, we were. poverty. It was poverty. Yeah. Yeah. We had bare light bulbs in my house and I'm like, damn, mom can't even afford a fucking lampshade. We are goddamn poor. No, not not, not back then. <laughs> There's no way. That's, that's the thing about poor people is like, like when people don't have shit, they're not trying to make it look like they don't have shit. They're trying to like exactly. do the fanciness. That's why they're crocheting intricate Barbie doll dresses to cover toilet paper. Cause, exactly. Cause like, like, we, don't, we didn't want you to know that we take a piss. <laughs> yes, exactly. We don't we want you to know that we have things coming out of our holes. Yes. Well, that's how poor we are. I want you to think we are an upper echelon family in here. The, the w- interesting thing too, though, about the Righteous Gemstones is that so those people's houses are fancy country rich people houses right exactly so that shit gets leveled up in an extreme way and like the funny thing is so they've got like the bathrooms with like the again with like the floral swag and the bullshit but then they have these like i love when they show the shots of the kids rooms and they've got these like ginormous chairs for video game shit like baseball glove chairs (laughs) and like all of the couches and the recliners do like robot shit like they have a cooler inside of the the armrests and they're like moving around 360 degrees (laughs) (laughs) because that's the other thing too about rich country people is that they buy the stupidest shit they buy the stupidest (laughs) shit those couches make me so fucking sad. The couches that have the big cup holders and the armrest that flips down. Yes. It makes me so sad. And it's like a weird, always a weird leather, yes. like a leatherette, yeah. a leather, leatherish. Leatherish. <laughs> it's like got the fucking, the flip down arm with the cup holders like I'm in a truck. And I'm like, I don't need my couch to feel like a truck. Maybe that's why it makes me feel so sad. So my thing about the cooler in the couch is like... <laughs> The ice is going to fucking melt. You're going to cr- pull, Thank put you. that gas station ice in there, put a couple coors in there, and then that ice melts. And then what do you do with the ice that's in the melted ice that's in your couch? Or what do you get in the shop? A wet dry vac and just doing yeah. that shit in there? And you know nobody is, so that what they have instead is a fucking swamp. Like, you're like, where do these mosquitoes come from? Oh, my couch swamp. <laughs> like, it's just a breeding ground then for like dampness. Yeah, which I get, and the mildew smell, like oh god, those couches make me so fucking sad. Yeah, and then there you go, you've you fucking wasted four thousand dollars ruining your custom Auburn football <laughs> university fucking embroidered love seat or whatever the fuck. And that's that is again like the beauty of the show as well is are those moments where you're like this is a family who has no business having money because they're still just so they're the trashiest rich people of all time. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no amount of money that can take the trash out of that background. <laughs> Look, that's that's new money for you, right? It's like that's that's the thing is that that the the show is so brilliant in that it really like shines a light on that shit where they're like oh like we're buying each other like the stupidest christmas presents we're driving the stupidest cars we have like the dumbest Completely. houses you know and i they, love uh, that danny mcbride looks like old conway twitty like that shit <laughs> cracks me up and he's just got his 
his man jewels, his country guy jewels, like rings on every finger. He just, I mean, it's just so funny. Like that show rules. I love it. It is. Look, if anyone, we should get Danny McBride on the show. That would be a dream come true. If any of his kids are listening right now, (laughs) his nephews, nieces, I don't care. Put us in touch. We should get Danny McBride on this pod. Casey, put him on the list. We got to rocket him to the top. Number one I with a bullet. I would literally retire. If that were to happen, I would retire the next day. 100%. No more podcasts. 100%. But he's he's so funny. And he does it in a way where, again, like he he's punctuating things about his own background in a way that is not, he's making fun of them, but he's not saying this isn't me. Like he's not making fun of something that he isn't. He's making fun yeah. of things that he knows very intimately, so therefore it's not as, like, acerbic. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's him. it's that even if you're not that person, like, if you are the person that escaped your family, your entire family is that. Exactly. Still. Like, you might be the guy that's, like, chill and is, like, not, you know, putting fucking curtains on a toilet, but <laughs> your family is. And you can't pretend that that ain't true, so... You know, there's a little bit of that where you're like, you know, obviously we're all we all have to reckon with that side of our lives with these people that have that bullshit in their house. Like you might live in a converted a van that you spent a hundred thousand dollars converting so you could like play it being poor. But we know your family your family has a toilet sham. And that is the name (laughs) of this episode. (laughs) Your family has a toilet sham. (laughs) You've got a piss covered (laughs) toilet sham in your background somewhere you can't run away from that shit i couldn't have said it better myself <laughs> you can't run away from it just embrace it we all have it just embrace it just embrace it That's well if, the if you haven't seen the righteous gemstones you deserve to treat yourself and the second season when the first season was wild the second season is wild in a completely different way which i also appreciate the skill of that in the writing because they keep all yes. the characters fresh and you know the characters are standard like they're they stay the same but they expand yes. their worlds so much and so wildly. I just, I love it. Yeah. You got it. I mean, every fucking person on the show is funny. Like yeah. Adam He's- Devine and <laughs> Tony Cavallero, like their whole, their friendship, the way that they pass their days on that show is so goddamn funny. Uh-huh. Every, there is literally, it's all killer, no filler. It's so good. Completely agree. I'm so glad. I'm so glad we finally talked about it together because I feel like the first season we were constantly like texting each other and busting yeah. it down. But I think we watched it off off kilter this this season. So I'm glad we got to talk about yeah. it because this season, uh, and Adam Devine, it must be said, absolutely kills it in the role of like the young Justin Bieber type pastor. Yes. Because <laughs> those fools are in a league of their own. Oh my God. What the, the muscle men, just wait for it, people. If you haven't it. seen it, you're not even ready for those muscle men. That's all I'm saying. Well, you know what I'm ready for? Ready to talk about movies. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> you might have guessed the theme for this week. We've done it before. We love it. It's it, Yeah. I mean, one day we're going to do a theme where both of the movies are named the same thing, and it's not what you think it is. Exactly. But why don't you tell them the theme for this week? So our theme for this week is just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yes. And we have done uh, this before with the Point Breaks and the Feet Loose, the Foot Loose movies. The Feet Loose. <laughs> yes, we have. And, you know, the whole thing about it is that, you know, 
we obviously have talked about this in these previous episodes where it's like, okay, uh, Hollywood is bankrupt of original ideas. And so they just love to remake stuff, right? But in this case, this is going to be an interesting one because I think I have a little bit more of a nuanced opinion of this remake than I did of the others. Because the others, yeah. I was like, they garbage, sort of. It's cool that this time, I think we are we are approaching the remake in a different way than we have. Um, yeah. I think we we tried to give the other two the benefit of the doubt, but this one is like when you remake a classic, I think it, there's a different vibe that has to come along with that. And and I'm going to be talking about the remake, and I specifically want to talk about the director's reasons for doing the remake and yes. really thinking about how do we consume remakes over time. So I think there's a different different vibe this, this week. Definitely. And to that point, I, I think it's that this was an intentional choice made by the director, kind of like almost like an art project or something. Mm -hmm. I don't want to reduce it down to that simple term, but it's that thing of with the other two episodes that we did, you definitely felt like market forces were involved. Like they were like, Oh, we need to remake point break because it's just like a cult movie and we need to make a shit ton of money and we're going to redo it and find somebody to do it. Whereas this felt a little bit more deliberate. This felt a little bit more like, you know, a famous director wants to do take on this famous text. You exactly. know what I mean? So I think it's going to change it a little bit this time. But I'm excited because, like you said, you're doing the remake this time. I'm doing the original. So I get to talk about the original finally, and you get I to finally like do. Because you were tasked with watching the <laughs> Julianne Huff Footloose and the goddamn Gatorade commercial <laughs> point break, you should at least. Be able to do the classic film that we are discussing, and I will do the remake this time. Like, I owed that to you big time. You're such a good friend. I really appreciate your friendship because it was tough. The last two were tough. I think you would have quit the pod if I'm like, so you'll watch the remake. You'd have been like throwing your, like burning your mic, your, your mic on the stove. Not again. (laughs) God damn it. Well, let's let's go for it then. Are you yeah, ready? I'm ready. Okay, so my movie for the theme of just because you can doesn't mean you should is a movie from 1960. It was written by Joseph Stefano based on a book of the same name by Robert Block, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and it's called Psycho. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway. And as you see, perfectly harmless looking. Let me know what you think about this, Danielle. So I feel like there's like not a really good way to talk about this movie unless you spoil a few things. Oh, of course. This is something I I was interested in as well because I think this is one of those movies where even if you haven't seen it, it has been referenced so thoroughly in pop culture that you already know what it's about. And you already exactly. know all the, the beats and the spoilers and everything. And we can't talk about the movie without talking about it in a full way. Correct. And, and I'm glad you feel that way because I am going to probably spoil a lot of this movie. And if for some reason you haven't seen the original Psycho and you haven't watched TV or movies in the past 60 years, then <laughs> maybe this is not your episode. Maybe just wait for next week. If, um, you, if you've never seen a single episode of a Simpsons Halloween <laughs> then you won't get it this episode. If you if you haven't seen any modern horror or horror since 1960, <laughs> then just 
Wait for next week's episode, okay? Yeah, watch it. Um, watch it and then come back. Yeah, come back. Okay, so let me do like a quick one-sentence synopsis. A secretary goes on the run after stealing a giant wad of cash from her job and meets a strange young man working at a roadside motel that will alter the course of her life. Perfection. Yeah. I mean, that's like, you got to do kind of basic one sentence synopsis, but there's so much more. Yes. So much more. So let me get some paperwork out of the way. Love it. So the book Psycho that this screenplay was based off of was written in 1959 and was kind of sort of based on the real crimes of Ed Gein, whom everyone probably knows, a famous murderer. So much is based off of his crimes, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like you name it. But the weirdest part is that, so so Ed Gein was arrested near where Robert Block was living in Wisconsin when he was arrested in the 50s. And- while he was writing the book, Psycho. <gasps> so the book that he was writing and the real case apparently had like a lot of similarities. So Robert Block was like, well, let me just kind of throw in an Ed Gein thing or something. Like, So it's sort of that thing where it's like the book was written at the same time as that that case, but um, wasn't like, you know, completely based off of it. So it's kind of yeah. like there's some like artistic license there was but, robert block ever a suspect because they're like yo this book you were writing about this shit before it even happened what the hell dude i know what are you like a psychic writer this is its own movie a psychic novelist sees a crime in his mind and then the crime happens and then so like look this is for your writer's room like well like table this we'll talk about this later we'll write this movie next week don't worry about it you may yeah. <laughs> okay this is this is what i think is really interesting so first of all the director, Albert, Albert, the fuck? Let's call him Albert Hitchcock the whole episode. Albert Hitchcock. And just wait Frock. for, like, true film enthusiast minds to explode. Like, these goddamn ladies don't even know his name. These stupid bitches <laughs> think they can do a film podcast. Albert Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Albert Hitchcock wrote and directed <laughs> Psychos. Psychos with an S. Albert Hitchcock. Wrote Psychos. Directed Psychos. Psychos. <laughs> so the director of this movie is quite obviously Albert Hitchcock. Did I say yeah. that? <laughs> oh my God. What the fuck? Alfred Hitchcock. Let me go back. <laughs> this is fucking fucked up. So the director of this movie is quite, quite famous. <laughs> it's Albert Brooks. His name is Albert Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> Yeah, it's because I said Albert Brooks. I'm fucked up. I'm on acid. Okay. So here's the interesting thing about this. First of all, like, I'm not going to give you the whole thing about Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, my God. Go and Google him. Actually, I got to say, the Wikipedia entry for Psycho is huge so a lot of information can be found there about this movie i'm not going to go through it all but there have been volumes written about alfred hitchcock oh my god volumes yeah we don't need to go into it you know who he is but the craziest part to me about this is that psycho was one of his later career movies like he had already made like 40 movies before he made psycho which is kind of unreal if you think about it because this is one of the most iconic horror movies of all time and is exactly. probably his most famous movie, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just crazy how he had worked so much already and then made this like movie that now is, 
you know, one of his most famous movies, if not his most famous. Yeah. This is this is why we don't stand a, a thirty under thirty list. Yes. Give me some sixty over sixties. Exactly. Give me an Alfred Hitchcock making Psycho at the end of his career. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of amazing. Like I always forget that. I'm like, yeah, this was like you know later period Hitchcock. But this movie is iconic for so many reasons. I mean, obviously, it's completely embedded within our popular culture at this point. But also, it kind of like moved the goalposts in terms of like what kind of violence and sexuality you could show in movies, right? Yes. Because you're still, 1960, you're still within the production code and the studio system. You know, obviously that would be going away in a few years, like in the later 60s. But like, you know, at this time, you weren't showing this kind of stuff yet, really. Uh, and maybe right. in Europe they were doing that kind of thing, but like definitely not these big studio American pictures, right? So he really kind of changed the game for all that. And, you know, this is a movie along with Peeping Tom where a lot of people say that these were kind of the first slasher movies. I know we talked about that mm. when we talked about Black Christmas, but, you know, definitely like early, early entries into what would eventually become slasher, right? Exactly. But most interestingly to me is that it was so it was very controversial when it came out for so many reasons, but also because it was one of the first times a toilet was shown in a movie. <laughs> like, is that this, this is the kind of trivia I live for? Like, we can't offend your eyes with a toilet. American audiences, and then Alfred Hitchcock is like, but you go to see one. <laughs> like, pa- apparently, that pa- rim. Paramount was scandalized. Like, they were like, I cannot <laughs> fucking believe you showed a toilet. That's disgusting. Nobody took a fart, a shit, or a piss before 1960. Listen. It was done behind 14 closed doors. Every bathroom was like the Winchester Mystery House. Like, you really want to know why you're going down that hallway. Listen, Psycho walked so that ghoulies could run. Am I right thank about you, that? Thank you. Okay, thank can you. we put that on a t-shirt? <laughs> Psycho walked so that ghoulies could run. I mean, I, ghoulies was like, we will have something coming out of that toilet and eating your ass. <laughs> A mere 20 years later, Alfred Hitchcock kicked the door open and Ghoulies just like fucking threw some fireworks in there and went with it (laughs) right behind him. Oh, my God. So I just think that that fact is so fucked up and funny. But there's just really, truly so many great things about this movie for me. I mean, it's gorgeous. Black and white is gorgeous. I think I saw like the version that I just recently saw, like when I was prepping for this episode, I think it was like an ultra high def or something like that. And I'm just sort of like, damn, like they really, I mean, it looks incredible. Like the movie. Yes. Yeah. This movie looks great now that, you know, modern times have, you know, made it all HD and spiffy, but the great Saul Bass, of course, did the title sequence. Iconic. Gorgeous. Bernard Herman. Come on. Do I even have to mention his score? His shower scene score that is now embedded in all of our brains. And that's all we think about when bad things happen. So, I mean, it's a, it's an incredible movie. The cast. Oh my God. Janet Lee, Anthony Perkins, more about him in just a second. You Good. got, yeah, we got Vera Miles in there. John Gavin, the craggy hot royalty himself, Martin Balsam, who plays 
Arbogast. It's great. So um, here's the thing. I'm going to go through kind of some of the beats of the film. Like I said, going to spoil maybe a couple things. Hopefully you guys won't be mad at me. But um, I and I have a lot to say about Anthony Perkins. I will say it towards the end because he has had a fascinating life. Yes. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff that I think I would like to talk about in re- direct reference to him and also for this movie and sort of his fame because he became yes. this like super famous person after this movie came out, um, which is always really interesting when actors kind of go through that. But so Janet Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother plays Marion Crane. All right. She's at the beginning of this film. She's having this sexual affair with this guy named Sam Loomis. Okay. Who is played by John Gavin and they're going off to these motels and having a little nookie on her lunch breaks she wants to get married, okay? And he sort of does too, but he's like, I'm also broke because I owe alimony to my ex-wife and like yeah. my, apparently my dad owes a lot of money I need to give him money or something like that. I don't even really know the story See, that's, that's that fucked up family dynamic from, from way back, which I think a lot of people still try to perpetuate and I'm like, I'm not the one where they're like, oh, my dad is broke and I have to help him out. And I'm like, why? He did that. Why? <laughs> he, he, he gambled his shit away. Why? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I, it was, it's kind of, uh, I was kind of like this time really thinking about that. And I was like, damn, he owes a lot of money and it's because of his dad. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it's a fucked up reason to put your own life on hold back then. But I think a lot of people did it. And also too, like just the notion, because honestly, like the entire, her entire motivation for this movie rests on this idea that he doesn't have any money. Right. Exactly. So it's a kind of thing where like a woman in this era wouldn't marry a guy that didn't have money. Number one. But then Mm -hmm. number two, like it was also like a stain on your record if you were divorced. Right. So the fact that he owes money uh, in alimony is not great. Right. Exactly. He he was he was the um, the like if TLC wrote a song about him, he would be the scrub. Yes, he would be a fucking scrub. Sorry to say it, Sam. In the eyes of the 1950s and 60s, he was the scrub. Yes, he was a classic movie scrub. Uh, That'll be a theme one day, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) So after their motel sesh, she goes back to work, and she is a secretary for this real estate guy. It's like a real estate brokerage person. So she goes back to the office, and this, like, customer comes in who is apparently a friend of her boss and he's like this big money like texan country kind of guy and he's like he's like yosemite sam yes he's that like classic film character of like the i'm an oil baron like i'm just like a straight shooter am i right like he's like that kind of guy and uh he's like I'm going to plunk down $40,000 in cash for my daughter's house or something like that. (laughs) She's getting married. I'm buying her house. I'm doing it with all of my illegal untaxed cash. And you're just going to do it. You're just going to deal with it. I love characters like that where they're just like, your problem now. (laughs) Yeah. And I also love in your movie later that that amount is adjusted for inflation. And I'm like, damn, I guess 40K was a lot in 1960. Okay. So Absolutely. basically he plunks down this money and the, and the boss is like, I don't want this cash in here. So Marion, <laughs> take this shit to the bank and we'll just deal with it after the weekend. So she's like, okay, well I'm going to do that. And I'm going to go home. Cause I have a headache. I'm a woman. I can't deal with headaches. I need to be alone. You know, in that very classic, like I have a headache and therefore everyone's like, you know, kind of worried about her. 
It's exactly. Like, like, oh no, is her head going to explode? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I love that. I love that sort of like old school notion. I also think back then, like, people would do anything to keep a woman from talking about her period. So yes. you just said, like, I have a headache. They're like, God damn, let's end it right there. Don't talk about that blood coming from your vagina, please. We don't give a shit about anything else happening as long as it doesn't lead us down that road. Disgusting. Talk about your fucking period, you disgusting beast. So she's tasked with putting the money in the bank. But instead, she goes home, changes into her bad girl bra, and then runs away with the money so she and Sam could eventually live in happiness. So that's what she's doing for this dude. She's stealing money from her work so that she can run away with him and they can, like, pay pay off his debts, his dad's debts. So that they can get a place to live. Yeah. So... Here's here's where the movie kind of really kicks in, right? Because she takes off in her car. She is driving towards, you know, I guess where Sam lives in California because they originally start this in Phoenix. So she's driving mm-hmm. from Arizona to Northern California is what I what I gathered. So basically, immediately she gets stopped by a cop and, you know, he, she's got to come up with some fucking story because he's nosy as hell. And... Then she decides to pull over at a um, a used car lot so she can switch her car out. And meanwhile, she's trying to do this shit while the cop just, you know, shows up like, oh, so you're selling a car now? I don't know what you told me back there, but like, I know you said you were sleeping on the side of the road. That's really weird. Uh, and now you're trying to sell your car? Okay. What's up with this? And she's like, her eyes. And that's the one thing Bugging. about Janet Lee that's incredible is that she telegraphs all this fucking fear through her eyes. And she's like, holy shit. So basically, you know, this is the beginning of like this whole scenario where there's a stress of knowing that she stole this money and all this stuff that she has to do in order to avoid getting caught is just like, it's the suspense of the film. It's classic suspense. So great. So after she switches her car out, she's rolling down the road. It's raining. She's getting a little tired. And then she sees a motel on the side of the road. And guess what kind of motel it is? It's it's one called the Bates Motel. And she meets the manager of this hotel. His name is Norman Bates. Okay. Now, I don't know how far I need to get into the Norman Bates thing because honestly, he's a he's a classic horror character alongside Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees. He's one of those. He's one of the horror icons. The only thing you need to know is that he's the original intense hot freak. <laughs> Truly. He is. <laughs> he, he laid the groundwork for every weird, hot guy. Right? Every weird crush you've ever had, you owe to Anthony Perkins. Yes. He fucking, he walked so that your stupid ass could run. Okay? So that Machine Gun Kelly could run. <laughs> or fucking Pete Davidson and one of those ghouls. <laughs> Here's the thing about Norman. So he, this is his family's motel. He lives at the top of the hill with his elderly mother, who is also his BFF. He's he's also into taxidermy, and he has no other friends besides his mom. So you know what we're working with here. They're just like 85 red flags lining the path to the motel driveway. <laughs> Completely. I mean, there needs to be a giant sign that's like, don't stop here, even if this guy is kind of hot. <laughs> And, you know, he, he he's all like, oh, my God, like, I haven't seen anybody in forever. How? Let me help, your, help you out. Let me get your bags. And, you know, he wants to chit-chat with her because, again, he just doesn't see anybody but his mom and his birds. 
And she's like, yeah, yeah. Okay, kid, cool. I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. Like, I'm, I'm leaving. Okay. Let me, let me give you this alias real quick and get the hell out of here. <laughs> yes, exactly. So she's in her room. She's like, takes the money that she stole and wraps it up in a newspaper and is like, you know, trying to like hide her shit. And then she gets into the shower. And I don't think I have to go real far into this at all because there's the shower scene, which is probably the most f- famous thing about this movie and i mean there's an entire documentary about it for god's sake it might be the most famous scene in any movie correct and i would say yeah i would totally say that as well and there are so many facts about the shower scene that are online like if you just like i said go to the wikipedia article for uh psycho literally like the there's an entire section of this shower scene where it's like people are going into minute details i mean it's like crazy like there's all this you know there was like this rumor that saul bass directed it secretly and i mean it's just like crazy it's been picked apart is what i'm saying and you should read all of it because it's fascinating but all i will say though is that this shit hits still to this day it is chilling to be honest i mean as much as it's been parodied and shit but like to me, like, the sound of it mm-hmm. is crazy. Like, I, I know, like, again, if you go to the Wikipedia article, it'll tell you that the sound that the knife makes as it's being stabbed into uh, Marion's body is like a melon being sliced. Yeah. And I'm like, to me, that shit fucks with me. I'm like, wow. It's too real. Yeah, it's too real. I mean, in 1960, this would have blown people's fucking brains out i mean it's, it's and they don't even show the, the slashes they just show the sound sa- the sound and the vision the close-up visuals is enough for you to be like oh no yeah i mean it's the the blood which apparently was chocolate syrup um mm. because it's in black and white it just looked better and just the whole everything about it when she grabs the shower curtain and then like the it rips off of the the rings i mean it's fucking terrifying and you know here here when it gets right down to it Another thing about this movie being so revolutionary is that, I mean, the the main character dies in the first half of the movie, which was almost unheard of in this era. That's what I wanted to ask you, because I wasn't able to figure figure out too much info on it. But was this one of the first movies that did that, where it's like the the main character that you're following dies and the whole story changes after that? Yeah, I mean, I would say this was definitely one of the first. You know, there's always been kind of like that plot of like, somebody who tells you the beginning like you know in noirs they do that a lot where it's like well this ended up like this and let me tell you how it happened and they kind of go through it backwards or whatever but for this and and the craziest part is that hitchcock used it as part of the marketing of the film i mean he was basically like a william castle thing where he was like you're not allowed to come in after the movie starts because you're not going to be able to like we don't want you walking in this movie, you know, late because something crazy happens. And so it was like a part of the gimmick of the movie. So I think it was, I think it was one of the first times that it happened and it made people really curious to see it. And, you know, honestly, like I said, it would have been hard for me not to say all that with, you know, so I'm spoiling the movie insofar as it propels the second half of the film. So there you go. But so that happens. It's a huge pivotal scene you know, Norman comes down from the house and sees that, you know, Marion is dead in the shower and he believes it to be his mom, right? Yeah, and he his starts, mom killed her, yeah. Yeah, starts having these conversations with his mother at in the house, which you can hear that it's like, they're debating like, what have you done? I can't believe it. There's blood everywhere, et cetera. So 
from this point on, the cavalry comes in and Marion's boss figures out that she never deposited the money. Her sister, who's played by Vera Miles, is like, where's my sister? And then Sam's looking for her, too. And then you get Arbogast, who is the private investigator on the case. They all sort of come in at separate times, but also together to kind of figure out where she's been. And then they eventually track her to the Bates Motel, where Norman starts having to answer some questions. So we start finding out a lot more about Norman and his mom. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of backstory that you find out about them, which is that his father passed away. The mother got remarried or has a new had a new boyfriend at one point. There was some crazy kind of murder-suicide situation with, with the two of them. He found them dead, and it just goes from there. And I, I mean, there's a point where I want to spoil this. I feel like everybody knows it, but I'm going to say yeah, it. Yeah, everybody, just say it, yeah. Well, as it is revealed at the end of the film, Norman's mother is actually dead, and he's been propping her up in a chair in their house, her corpse, basically. And he has been dressing like his mother and murdering people. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, writing about that, about his sort of like drag character. And like, there's a lot of like uh, good grad level type writing about that kind of stuff, which I encourage people to go and read if you want. But that's pretty much the, the story. And I was going to tell you a little bit about Anthony Perkins just because I he's one of my favorite actors. When I was when I first started at TCM, I read the biography about him called Split Image that was written by mm. Charles Weinkoff. And I got to tell you, if you go to again, if you go to Wikipedia and you look up Anthony Perkins, that entire biography is basically that entry. Like it is very long <laughs> and extensive where I was like, damn, it's like I'm rereading the book. But this movie made him a star. Okay, he he started all the sequels that were ever made about, you know, Psycho 1, 2, 3, and 4, the TV movie, like whatever. He was in all of them. But the saddest part for me is that he experienced a lot of homophobia when he was working in Hollywood. Basically, yeah. he was gay. He was also like a non-traditional masculine guy. Like he was sensitive and insecure and sort of like shy and very boyish and the studios wanted him to be a matinee idol and they wanted him to be in movies with women and he, they they did not want him to be gay at all and there is a great great autobiography that tab hunter the actor tab hunter wrote basically he and tab hunter dated and their relationship got torn apart by the studios oh. and you know they had I mean, it was crazy. Apparently, they had hired, like, women to be their girlfriends, and they would, you know, take press photos of the of all of them going on double dates, and then they would go home together. I mean, it was just kind of this, like, open secret, but the studios really shut it down. And, and I think what ended up happening is Anthony Perkins decided to buy out his contract at Paramount, and then he moved to Europe and made movies in Europe for a while and came back in the late 60s, and that's when he started making, you know, his later kind of period stuff like mahogany and pretty poison but it's sad because i think that that affected his entire life and i was reading both what tab hunter wrote in his autobiography but also what was in the mike nichols book that was written by mark harris mm -hmm. uh, where it basically says he went through the equivalent of gay conversion therapy Ugh. and he even had electroshock 
Jesus. Yeah, to quote unquote cure his gayness. And at the time that it was happening, I think Anthony Perkins felt like being gay was hard for him and it made his life hard. So he just wanted to like get it out of him, I guess. And that is extremely sad to me. Of course. And plus he was surrounded by people who were telling him that that was possible and encouraging him to do it and trying to break up his relationships and encourage him to not be gay. It's really sad because Anthony Perkins became an icon because of this film. And I know that he was typecast a lot after Psycho. He was in a lot of like, there was always trying to put him in horror films and whatnot, but like he was such a great actor. And it just is sad to me that he has this insanely awesome legacy of like being Norman Bates and being like this icon. But then he was, he had a lot of turmoil in his personal life. And he didn't get like benefit from his own fame. Yeah. Or get to enjoy his own fame. Correct. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, he's a great actor. He obviously passed away. He died of the AIDS virus. And I remember when that happened. Do you remember like when it I was totally announced? I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's just, he's like one of those figures in Hollywood that it just, I would actually, you know, love to see some kind of movie about him or some kind of documentary about him because I think he's super fascinating. But he is part of the legacy of Psycho. And um, he's an interesting part of it to me for my money. He definitely is. So, but anyway, the, you know, when it comes down to it, Psycho, the film, everybody should see this movie because it is it is the reference point for so many things, right? You'd be surprised when you watch it. You're like, oh, yeah, that also comes from this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's like there are horror movies in our history, like Psycho, like The Shining, like where you see it over and over and over again in other horror movies. Like even when you want to talk about Jordan Peele, like we did a few episodes ago, you can see Psycho in pretty much every horror movie. I mean, it's it's exactly. totally amazing. And it's a, it's one of those texts. It's like a foundational text that everybody should watch. So, and now we have a remake <laughs> to talk about. I love the original so much. And I'm very interested in talking about the remake. Um, let me just set it up for you. So my film for our Just Because You Can Doesn't Mean You Should theme was released in 1998. It was directed by Gus Van Sant. And again, still written by Joseph Stefano, based on the book by Robert Block. It's Psycho! Surprise! It's not as if she were a maniac or a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. (laughs) Haven't you? And I I didn't do a one-sentence synopsis speak for one reason. This movie, what is interesting about this remake, is that it is a shot-for-shot remake meaning every single beat of the film, from the way the cop leans into Marion's window, the way she packs her suitcase, every single scene is a shot-for-shot remake. It's just in color and updated the actors with new actors and a new director. So the cast is wild. Uh, Vince Vaughn plays Norman Bates. Anne Heche plays Marion Crane. Julianne Moore plays her sister Lila. Uh, Viggo Mortensen plays Sam Loomis. And William H. Macy plays Arbogast, the private eye. Uh, there's a young Robert Forster <laughs> in there Ooh. towards the end. A young Philip Baker Hall. Young. It's... <laughs> I know. I know. Because I'm like, wait a minute. I'm saying young because <laughs> like 10 years later, they were ancient. He was born 67 years old. And that's fine. <laughs> 
so th- so this cast is something I definitely want to talk about because yes, I overall. I don't think this is a terrible remake in terms of the scope of what it was trying to do, which was remake the movie shot by shot and kind of pay homage to the film by updating the film. So in that way, it wasn't bad. My three main problems with this movie. One, during the scene where Norman is looking through the peephole into Marion's room as she's getting changed before she gets into the shower, in true Gus Van Sant style... He doesn't just look like he does in the original movie. You hear him masturbating. Mm. And that bothered me a lot. And I don't, and it's not because I'm prudish. It bothered me because I'm like, wait a minute. This is too modern an an update. And it took the creepiness factor to a different place. Like in the original, when he's looking through the peephole, you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. Is he just kind of a weirdo? Is it? But when, once you hear the masturbation, you're like, oh. Like, yeah, this guy's a total gross creep. Yes. So that took me out of it completely. Yeah. The other two things that bother me about this movie are Vince Vaughn and Anne Heche. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Those were Those, my notes. Those were my notes. I mean, truly what is fucking happening here? Who in their right mind thought, and again, I know it's 1998. I know this is post-swingers. Like, I get it. But I don't think we needed to see this movie with those stars. They don't have the chemistry. Vince Vaughn is not anywhere near creepy enough or delightful enough to play the Norman Bates character in my role. He took it to a very different place because even he, you know, he does that weird giggle where he's like, like he does this weird giggle in every movie. (laughs) It might be how he actually laughs. I don't know. Yeah. But that's what he was doing to punctuate the creepiness instead of acting it the way that Anthony Perkins did. Anthony Perkins was very charming, I thought, as Norman Bates, um, you know, pre-murder. He was very charming and effusive and kind of shy. And he played all these different layers of what a guy who works in the desert and lives with his mom would kind of be like, which was not necessarily instantly murderous. And Vince Vaughn does not give me that at all. Instantly, I'm like, this guy's a goddamn murdering freak. Like, he just played it so weird. Yeah, I was really, really trying to divorce what I feel about Vince Vaughn now. Because, you know, obviously, we have seen him in so many comedy films. Like, you know, I was trying to remember, you know, like, oh, he's not the dodgeball guy. He's trying to be a serious, a serious psychopath, not a funny psychopath. But... (laughs) I still think in spite of me mentally doing that, I just couldn't see it. Like, I I think it's because <laughs> what I, I want to go back to the Anthony Perkins thing. I think Anthony Perkins felt more like a wounded sort of boyish character to me. Yes. Like, and part of like what you have to do when you watch the original Psycho is you have to kind of understand Norman Bates as a person who is like, troubled and has this like troubled relationship with this mother and he has to come off as weird and quirky and kind of I don't know unsure of himself as if maybe that's the best way to describe it I don't get that from from Vince Vaughn I feel like Vince Vaughn I mean he definitely had the height to be Norman Bates but he also was kind of like too hot is that weird to say (laughs) like he's like (laughs) he was like a hunky a hunky guy less weird dude with his birds and more kind of like 
I don't know. Like maybe a straight up Ed Gein. Like maybe he is yeah. just truly Ed Gein. But he, he didn't. He didn't make me feel sort of sorry for him in a in that way that I do with the original exactly. Bates, right? That is the exact point. Is that I didn't feel for him at yeah. all. I did not feel for and nor and for some reason. Anthony Perkins, I really was, there was a tenderness there yeah. that you're like, oh, this guy, you know, like his life. And with, I don't know, Vince Vaughn just didn't do it for me. And that was part of my issue with the remake is that if you're going to do a shot for shot remake, I think you have to be really careful about who you're putting in these roles. And the height thing also kind of threw me because look, Anthony Perkins was six foot two. Yeah. Vince Vaughn is six foot five. He instantly looks insane next to anyone he's acting with because actors are, are pretty famously kind of short people <laughs> Yeah, on the shorter side. So in every scene, he looks wild next to everyone anyway. But he's six foot five. And I'm yeah. like, when he's in the wig and the dress at the end, I'm like, this, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> There's just not... like his, When he comes in the door dressed as Norman's mother, you're like, his head's like poking over the side of the, the top of the <laughs> shower. Like, it's just too much <laughs> the physicality of it is too much for me <laughs> they would in the colonial times of when this spooky house was built his <laughs> six five guys weren't running around like they didn't make those houses for guys that tall let's get serious he couldn't even get up and down the staircase because he'd go <laughs> up the staircase and there'd be another staircase like angle on top of it and he'd be all he would he would have a hunch let's put it that way yes. he would have a hump back Hey, if they did be that, real about this. I, w- I think I would have bought it. He was too hot. Too <laughs> tall and too hot. And the laugh, the laugh threw me. <laughs> the laugh was absurd. So that just instantly I thought, eh, I don't need this. And Hayes is another one. There's something about their chemistry that doesn't work for me. So with Anthony Perkins and Janet Lee, they had a chemistry that was so tense that it kind of, again, like, made those scenes pop. Like you said, Janet Lee was very evocative and kind of really acts and telegraphs things with her eyes and her facial expressions in a way that really heightened that tension between them. Yeah. And with Anne Haitian and Vince Vaughn, I just wasn't feeling it. I just wasn't feeling their chemistry. I totally agree. I feel like she was definitely not the right person for this. Like... Part of what I think is interesting about the chemistry between Norman Bates and Marion is that she seems, and maybe this is because he's so emotionally stunted, but like she seems older than him and she seemed more like motherly towards him. Yes. Right? That is the chemistry that you need to like really process who Norman is as a character and then why he would be kind of obsessed with his mother. Right? Exactly. So, in that, I was watching those moments really intensely because I was like, what is what is off about this that I'm not, I'm not buying this? And I just don't think that Anne Heche felt like she was, she didn't feel maternal towards him at all. No. She seemed kind of like scared of him. And I think it maybe is like the physical like difference in their height, but she just didn't seem like, I don't know. She just wasn't that character for me at all. And yeah, there was no worry. There was no worry. She was like, well, I'm going to bed. Bye. And I'm like, oh, like she's not creeped out by him at all. Right. right. <laughs> or motherly or. Yeah. Like there was nothing. There was really no chemistry there. Right. Because you have to in, like like I said, I'm not trying to maybe put too much. I don't want to put too much emphasis on Norman Bates as a as a character. But I'm just saying that in the context of the film, 
everything that you learn about him is coming from their interaction, right? Because then you don't understand what his deal is for the rest of the film until you see them sit down together in the parlor and they're having those conversations. And it just felt kind Mm -hmm. of flat, did not feel very, very emotional to me. And, you know, I hate to, I hate to say it, but I just felt like they were, they were both miscast in my opinion. Yeah, no, they I I completely agree with you. And I think the other thing that bothered me about in terms of the casting or why I didn't really love um, Anne Heche in this role and why I thought this remake was a little clunky in this way, when the shower scene happens in this updated version, Gus Van Sant makes the choice to show the slashes on the body, yeah, which was different. But when I tell you that when Anne Heche grabs that curtain and falls over, you see her whole butthole. Like, she falls over the tub, asshole <laughs> up, and I'm like, again, we don't need it. But when you have Gus Van Sant directing a drugstore cowboy, my own private Idaho, Gus Van Sant, you're going to see your butthole. You're saying butthole. Let's let's get serious. Yeah, that and was... I'm like, Janet Lee would never. Janet Lee would never show you her, her b-hole. Yeah, I mean, there was doubts on whether or not... I mean, again, go to the extensive Wikipedia article <laughs> about Psycho. Um, but there, there was doubts of whether or not the the person in the shower was actually Janet Lee. That's how, you know, ba- that basically that there was a body double and she claimed that she was actually in the shower the entire time. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of one right. of those like legends of the film, but that's how much we couldn't know. Like we didn't know. Whereas in this, this version, you see Anne Heche's butthole and you're like, that is her butthole. That is her. <laughs> that is her that's side her. boob. That's her face. There's <laughs> <laughs> it's all there. We pan from, from butthole to side boob to face, and you can't deny that it's Anne Heche. And it's like, all right, like that's a that's a, an artistic choice, but I just don't think we need it. I think if you're doing shot for shot remake and you're taking some artistic license and putting your own stamp on it, I get that, like that urge to want to do that, but I don't think it honors the film. Yeah. And, you know, again, maybe it makes me a prude, I don't know, but I just felt like that whole scene felt much more more seedy and salacious to me yeah. than the first. The first, the original Psycho, the shower scene was scary. Yeah. This Psycho, this, the shower scene was like, again, very, very salacious. Yeah. And so it was just kind of a different, different feeling for me. Yeah. And I know that you're not a fan of gore. So, I mean, and, and I will say that it does feel uh, more gory. And like, there was yeah. actually the part too where... They, I don't think this happens in the original. I should I should actually check when the Norman Bates character comes into the bathroom initially, and he sees her body there in the mm-hmm. remake. I really noticed it this time, where he basically like steps over her, and her arm just like like he pulls the shower curtain, and her arms just like flop, dangling. Yes, and he like it just kind of flops around as he's like stepping around her, and I was like, that's fucking gruesome. It's gnarly. Yeah, yeah, it's gnarly. It's gnarly. Yeah. Gnarly as fuck. So yeah, that those those few things bothered me. I thought the casting was off. Um, I did appreciate that you know they kept the Saul Bass titles, they kept the music, the score. Um, Danny Elfman actually did um, the updated version of the score for this film. A lot of it works because it's similar. But they, there's also again those small things bothered me. The casting was wrong. I didn't need to see Anne Hage's butthole, and <laughs> even the <laughs> even the house was not as creepy. Like, the house in the original had the soffits and the, 
you know, that kind of old, old-timey Victorian house look, like a doll, Victorian dollhouse look. Yeah. And this house was just like, here's a house on a hill in a desert. Yeah. So, that, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you about that, too, because the one thing that I actually did appreciate about the film was that it sort of, like, really played up the desertness of it. Yes. Which I actually kind of dug. Like, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. The, the, the motel... <laughs> I mean, the motel, the Bates Motel in Gus Van Sant's movie is definitely more of like a Harry Dean Stanton hotel. It's like, absolutely got the fucking shitty couch out in the back. And it was like neon. It's a very like, you know, a sort of more updated Lynchian, David Lynchian kind of vibe to the motel, which I think totally. makes it creepier. And it reminds you. That she is in the middle of nowhere. Because that's what I think exactly. the, the first movie doesn't telegraph as much is that she's supposed to be on the, they move the highway. So this motel is fucking out of the way and nobody knows it's there. Yeah. And nobody's coming by anymore. <laughs> exactly. And and then you're like, that's why it's easy for this guy to be coming up here and killing people and putting their fucking cars <laughs> in the swamp because nobody will know. But they re- they really make the sense of that the isolation in the remake, which I appreciate. I, I agree completely. Yeah, the 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 actual um, the feeling of this movie is much more isolated, much more terrifying, and it's terrifying. Maybe that, maybe that's where the the this remake succeeds is that it's terrifying because in a modern sense there would be more things around this hotel. So to see nothing, you're like, oh, this really is. There's no chain mall. There's no strip malls. There's no you know, there's no chain restaurants. There's no, there's nothing that signifies that life is happening, which in the modern day sense is almost impossible to find places like that. So yeah, it really did feel like a much more isolated movie. And I like that. Yeah. I also liked, um, I think it's probably related to this, but the Sam Loomis character where Viggo Mortensen's kind of this like cowpunk LA yeah. guy. <laughs> well, I was like, okay, this is an interesting turn because you know, in my in in the original Sam Loomis, he's just kind of like a generic fucking like, you know, yeah. Jack Lemony, Don Drapery kind of office guy. Whereas Viggo Mortensen's character is wearing like a straw cowboy hat. He has like the the sideburns that Timothy Oliphant had in Go. Yeah, <laughs> those Timothy Oliphant sideburns. Definitely late nineties sideburns there <laughs> and i i looked up um so gus van sant was on an episode of mark Marin's podcast wtf what the fuck and i'm very reluctant to invoke his name because he <laughs> for those who don't know i think i've spoken about this briefly but i do a list of enemies every year Mark Marin used to be my neighbor when I lived in New York, and he has been on my list of enemies for like 15 years. <laughs> yes. I knew and, that, but I love any time you mention that. Like just just a casual, my list of enemies is meant to be motivational. Like it's a very casual, like I want my life, I want to do better than these folks in my life just because I think that they're not good people. Yeah. I just want to be a better person than these people. That's what my list of enemies usually is. And I don't reveal it to anyone. And it's, I limit it to five people. But he has been on it for about 15 years straight. Wow. Wow. So I, I'm invoking this podcast against my my own will and better judgment. Um, and don't be snitched tagging Mark Maron. He doesn't give a shit. No one cares. He doesn't care. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but so Gus Van Sant was on an episode of 
WTF in 2018. And Collider.com posted some of the transcript from that episode where Gus Van Sant explains why he did the remake. And it's kind of interesting. And I want to talk to you about this a little bit because I won't read the whole thing. I'll read parts of it. Um, But he originally... He seems to have originally wanted to make this remake because he was upset that Hollywood did wasn't really making a lot of original movies at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And so he said, and I quote, there's a whole reason behind it. I think the process of doing it was the learning. It wasn't necessarily the result. It wasn't really about learning about Hitchcock. It was more that during the 90s, the joke about the executives was that they would rather make a sequel than they would an original piece because mm-hmm. there was less risk. They would rather continue a story that's already known in the public and they were really searching for some way to do that. Now they found out that comics is the way to do that, but back in the 90s, they hadn't found that yet. Oh, yeah. So that's part of the reason that he made it, is that it was a kind of like a really like bitchy kind of pushback about like, well, you don't like to make original films, so I'll just give you more of the same, but I'll do it my way. Yeah. Which is kind of a weird artistic impulse, yeah. I think. And I got to be honest, and this is the thing that, so I saw this when it came out, obviously, and was basically like, why did that happen? Okay. Mm-hmm. And ha- have not seen it since. Saw it in the movie theater. Yep. Now, having seen it again, being much older and wiser, hopefully, now I kind of understand it more. Like, I understand it more as this is sort of like a thought experiment, to use a phrase that I use a lot on this podcast. <laughs> And I can actually respect that. Like, I can actually respect a director like Gus Van Sant, who is very creative, very original, going and taking this classic text and sort of being like, well, I'm going to do things my way. And not even to do it in a completely bold, dairy. Like, he could have done an entire gay version of Psycho, which is kind of like what they would actually do now. Right. Yes. Is that they would just be like, let's take an entire film and just change all the variables about it. And, you know, this time it's exactly. like, it all, it's just going to start dogs or whatever. But he didn't even do that. He just took right. the original thing, did it shot by shot, and then just changed a couple of things about it, which I think is actually more of like, a, it's just more unexpected and sort of in a, in a way, like it is kind of a bigger statement to make for him. Right. Yeah. And it is, it's it's definitely a bigger statement, but it's also kind of a fuck you statement. Right. And it's like an inside joke that worked yeah. for him. You know, so I think that it's, it's, it's cool. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a part of me that feels like it's very cool that he did a shot by shot remake, made it his own, yeah. put his stamp on it. He's an incredible director. I love pretty much every movie of his that I've seen. Right. And I appreciate that part of it. But just knowing that it was... So the look of it, the way that it was done, the execution of it, I'm not having a problem with his vision there. What what I think is bothering me is that, like, knowing that for him it was just kind of a fuck you to the executives, I'm like, well, then you didn't need to waste your time or money doing that. Like, that's just, to me, like, the height of white male privilege in some ways, where they're like, I'm a very famous director, I can do whatever the fuck I want... My movie, Goodwill Hunting, was just nominated for an Oscar, so I know you want me right. to do your movies, so you want to be able to say that you have me on 
the on the docket. Sure. Um, and I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. And I'm going to do Psycho and show Anne Hage's b-hole. And I'm going <laughs> to make Norman Bates fucking hunky and hot and tall. <laughs> I'm going to make Norman Bates a hot six foot five weirdo. <laughs> And so I'm like, that That to me is, what I think, what bothers me about it is it didn't need to be done because he's a better director than that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there was a, there's a couple of things, too, that, like, you were like, okay, he is putting his stamp on it. Like, him showing the flashes during the mm-hmm. violence parts. Like, did you, did you notice that? Like, basically, yeah. like, him showing the scenes of, like, the animal. It flashes to an animal. It flashes to, like, some kind mm-hmm. of woman with like a mask taxidermy. yeah 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 mm-hmm. which is you know obviously his stamp and i just kept thinking like okay i don't know what i think about this type of thing but it is it you know it is kind of like it, it's the ultimate in that sort of like thought experiment in that art appreciation mode where you're like okay what do we think about somebody taking the original movie pretty much shot by shot original dialogue and then just kind of tw- tweaking it in these very specific ways. What what does that do to the original text? And right. that to me was always like what I was looking at it as versus it being this more of a, well, it's just a big fuck you. And it doesn't even really matter what I did. It's just like, you know, the idea that I just said, fuck you, Hollywood or whatever. Exactly. Um, you know, exactly. It's just a different way of seeing it, knowing that. Whereas before I was just literally taking like a like it was like one of those like side by side video games where you look at the the yeah. picture on the left and be like what's different ah! you know but I I honestly I gotta say I mean like I said before I did not hate it like when I when I first saw yeah. it I thought God this is weird but then I now I watch it again and I'm like didn't hate this at all I love so Julianne Moore's character I I wasn't sure if you're gonna talk so about this good. she is <laughs> where literally wearing a Walkman when you first yeah. intru- or first introduced to her. There's a moment where, again, we're going to spoil this. So at the end of the film, where Vince Vaughn's six foot five ass comes in ducking in the doorway, in the wig, and then he has the showdown with Julian Lila Moore and Sam. Yeah, the Lila character and, and Sam character. Sam comes in wrestles him to the ground now in the remake that's played out a little bit more than it is in the in the original but the thing that's interesting to me is that in the remake sam wrestles him to the ground and then lila kicks him Mm -hmm. which doesn't happen in the first film so she sort of participates in you know subduing norman right which I think is kind of awesome. And yeah. there was a moment where I was like, I wish I wish Vera Miles would have kicked his ass a little bit. <laughs> you know, like, it, it, and it kind of reminds you in that way that like, oh yeah, these women in, the, in these older films, they were just waiting for the guy to come along and save him from the bad exactly. guy. Exactly. Whereas Julianne Moore is like, fuck it. I'm getting in there and I'm fucking kicking this dude in the face. Well, that, and that's how the world had changed up yeah. till that point. Like, we started to see more women in action movies and in and, and these roles where they were not just passive. Yeah. And it would have made, it would have not made sense if she had just sat there and let Sam save her. Yeah. You know, just knowing the, and the character be, was so much more brash. Like, I think that the Vera character in the original is so punk rock and so, like, I'm doing it. I don't care what you say. I'm going up there. I'm going to that hotel. Like, she's very independent. 
Julianne Moore's version of Lila is very much like, like I used to run a radio station in the jungle for fun. Like she has that kind of energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she's not having it. And I think that that slight change was a smart one. Yeah. For sure. I, I do too. So yeah, there there was that little adjustment that I thought was actually really cool. But yeah, it is, it's interesting to me just this, this whole thing. And like I said, like before, when we were talking about just setting up this episode, this isn't an easy one to be like, this one just blows and we just get to make fun of it. It's just a little yeah. bit more nuanced. And I I actually appreciate that. I like having to think about it a little bit more, you know? I do too. I do too. And I think, again, it's because Van Sant made the, made the decision to do, to do the film, the original film, Justice, um, by keeping keeping it shot for shot. And the other thing that's important, I think, to know about this remake is that it fucking bombed. Like, it did not do well in the box office at all. Yeah. So on that same Collider article that, again, was taken from the Mark Maron podcast, um, he says, so it didn't work, but the idea was whether or not you could remake something and it would repeat the box office. That was a sort of weird science experiment. It's more important now, I think, because people like yourself will ask questions about it. It's more alive now than it was back when it failed just with the art world or with the modern world. Yeah. So the fact that it's like that that this remake has legs or is having a different perspective reading on it now, I think is is an interesting one. And I wonder how much of that is just that the way the world has progressed, we kind of have more of a language and we have more of a way to appreciate films like this and remakes like this. Totally. Um, or how much of it is that over time people calm down and just realized, eh, it's not that bad. <laughs> like there's always that knee-jerk reaction of like, I hate it because it's not the original. But then maybe people calm down. A hundred percent. That is perfect. Because that is, I think, a lot of what happens when you have these sort of like reevaluations of older films. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is happening literally every second right now because everybody is sort of reevaluating history and movies, television shows, characters, like songs. Like, what, what are these old things mean in this more modern context? And right. we're doing it sort of twice. I mean, with the original Psycho, but also this remake. And I totally agree. I think time really is the great salve or something to a lot of stuff where you just have to wait it out and see what happens in 20 years or so when people are like not as pissed off and yeah. also sort of in another zone in another framework. Because I got to tell you, like I was one of those people in 98 when I saw this in college being like, I mean, I was very new to the cinephile scene. So I was very much like, who is fucking doing this? Who is taking Hitchcock? And I'm like very much, I'm less precious about that generally, but also about Hitchcock. Like I'm like, who cares? Right. Right. But is, but also Gus Van Sant sort of having his own, knowing what he really thought while he was doing it or his right. reasons for doing it, which weren't clear to me in 98, but now yeah. because of, you know, him being able to discuss those things. We, we are, we are rocketing towards a future where at some point someone is going to make the argument that Ernest Goes to Camp should be canon. Like, that is just where we're going. 
as people reevaluate things. So I think that time <laughs> helps people calm down for sure, but it also creates a level of absurdity where then everything becomes important for some reason. And I'm just glad, I'm glad to know that Van Sant wasn't being terribly precious about this himself, that he was kind of doing it as a fuck you. He was kind of like doing it as a thought experiment, see if it could be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the thing that bothers me about that again is like, I want to see everyone have the chance to do that, not just like privileged white men who are nominated for Academy Awards. Exactly. And I'm also curious, man, now I need to go down. I should have went down this hole before we press record today. <laughs> but I'm curious as to what Vince Vaughn and Anne Hayes thought about, you know, playing these extremely famous roles and, yeah. and what they thought of it, especially knowing that it bombed so badly. Like, because I was sitting here thinking like, oh, Vince Vaughn is probably sitting around on his pile of money, but also going, oh, remember when I fucking played Norman Bates? Right. <laughs> And I had to eat those candy corns. I was eating candy corns. (laughs) He did, to his credit, he did eat the candy in exactly the same weird way that Anthony Perkins did, which I thought was cool. Yeah, like I that weird that hand motion that he flipped into was like that. That he nailed. Yeah, completely. Got, you got it. Perfect. You got it, Vaughn. You Print. got it. But yeah, he. I think that he is just sitting on his his pile of money, like he said, um, and. Now that we also have things like that TV show Bates Motel, where people are doing a dark reimagining of a dark movie, yes, um, you know, there's just lots of ways to feel like I think he, sh- th- th- I think everyone involved in this should feel fine about doing it. But yeah, I think that it's it's not like the blemish on their record that it might have once been. Yeah. Um, now that we're reevaluating things a little and seeing different remakes and looking at them a little more closely, it's like what we say. It's like we always say on this podcast: gotta rewatch movies. Sorry. Gotta go back. Even if you you fucking hated it and you told yourself, I'll never see that piece of shit again, watch it again. Because 20 years will go by and you'll be like, you know what? Why was I so crunk about that? Like, yeah. Why was I so mad? Yeah. <laughs> it's actually like not as bad as I thought. So. Although I will say that the, the remake of Point Break will bother me until I'm in my grave. I will never, ever see that again. <laughs> I will never. I can't do another fireside Bodhi chat. Can't do it. But you know what you can do? You can tell these fine folks what our movies are for next week. Our movies for next week are The Transporter from 2002 and Crank 2 High Voltage from 2009. Okay. <laughs> Let's just say right off the bat that you, th- these movies are not going to be for everyone. So do a little homework first and decide if you want to watch them. <laughs> yeah. I would extensively Google things before I committed. Wow. This episode was great. I had a great yeah. time rewatching the Psycho remake. I had a great time chatting with you about it. And it, hey, Me if you too. want, if you want to email us and you, you want to give us your thoughts, please do so at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And you can also find us on our social media. Uh, we are at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we also have I saw what you did merch in the exactly right shop. Uh, if you go to exactlyrightmedia.com/slash all podcasts shop, you can find our goods and wares. And hey, if you want more. If you just want more of us, please come over 
to Stitcher Premium. We got a whole bunch of bonus episodes for you. We talk a lot of shit. We have a lot of laughs. Use the promo code SAW if you want a free month of it. Please. We love. We have so much fun on the bonus. Come join us. We read your letters to you, so you want to see how we are reacting to you. Yes. To you and your weird parents. Um. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, this was a fucking blast. I love this. I'm going to go read that Anthony Perkins, that Tab Hunter autobiography. Yes. Because I'm th- I'm riveted now, so I want to read that. Yeah. Uh, and this honestly, if you if it. you want to just Google pictures, there are pictures of the two of them on these like fake dates. So strange. Right. But also you're like, Tab Hunter and Anthony Perkins dating is like the hottest thing I've ever heard Hots. in my life. Could you could get any hotter if you tried. <laughs> hot, hot heat. That's what that band's named after, right? They saw a picture of Anthony Perkins and Tab Hunter and they're like, hot, hot heat. Well, it was a blast, Danielle. As always, thank you so much for doing this podcast and for your insights and your intelligence and your wonderfulness. Thank you for allowing Aww. me to tackle the <laughs> the original. I really appreciate it. Oh, any you've done your due diligence with this category, with this theme. I'm happy to do it. You deserve it. Aww, we'll see you next week, guys. Okay, bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ISawPod. You can email us at ISawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. <laughs>